We're going to study tonight several seminal chuvas of the 19th century on the study of intellectual property. In particular, these chuvas deal, at least in part, with inventions, with the, the right of an inventor to exclude others from the use of his invention. The intellectual property is a, blo- is a broad term in modern law. It includes various sorts of property that are not physical. You can own traditional property. You can own a table, a slave, a donkey, a bowl of spaghetti. But uh, in, in modern law, there's a notion of intellectual property, which is a broad term which includes several types of non-tangible property. The two, two of the common types of property, two of the, two of the common subsections uh, of this body of law are patent law and copyright law. Broadly speaking, copyright law protects expression, things you say or write, books, things you fix and in, 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 in uh, in, in you articulate, a book, uh, a, a, a sonnet, a, a symphony, a, a, uh, you know, music, a computer program. These are all things you can copyright. Uh, patents protect the, the, the protect protect inventions or other types of patents, but the the, the one of the most common types of pat uh, one of the standard types of patents is for inventions. You, in halacha, doesn't really draw such a bright line distinction between them. In the law, they're very different. They have very different rules. But uh, in particular, copyright is uh, modern copyright is automatic. You don't have to file anything. You don't have to register anything. You, you write a short story. You have copyright. People do file just to have records of it, but you don't need to. It's automatic. An and author automatically has copyright. Patent is an elaborate process. You have to file a patent application, and it has to be examined by a patent examiner, as my wife used to do. Then it has to be approved. You have to be granted the patent. But halacha doesn't have all these distinctions. Halacha treats the question generally, does an inventor, an author, someone who is mechadesh something, someone who produces something innovative, does he have some kind of right in his in his ideas, in the in the, the the product of his intellectual labor or his inspiration? Does he have some kind of right, some kind of exclusive right, to his ideas? So this is this has been a major topic of discussion among the postkim from the mid nineteenth century or so. For whatever reason, we don't have much discussion of it earlier. Obviously, uh, with the Industrial Revolution, the, the explosion of printing, of, of education, of, of knowledge, th- there began to be many more books and many more inventions, many more things, but there certainly were books and inventions before the 19th century as well. For whatever reason, the halacha of, the halacha of intellectual property, the discussion begins in earnest in the 19th century. And we're going to study tonight several of the most famous chuvas on the topic. One Perhaps the most famous tshuva ever written on the topic is by Rabbi Yosef Shal Nathanson, the great Galician posek in Lemberg and Lvov. Another by Rabbi Yitzchak Shmelkis, the Beis Yitzchak. And we'll, we'll see, we'll compare the approaches they take to intellectual property. Both, both these tshuvas were written primarily uh, dealing with copyright, with dealing with uh, the written word, with svarim. But they also deal, in the course of their discussions, they also deal with inventions, what we would consider uh, material subject to patents. So we'll take a look first at the tshuva of the Shoal Lameshev, and then at the tshuva of the Beit Yitzchak, and then some other materi- related, materi- related tshuvas and material as well. The Shoal Lameshev's tshuva is fascinating. It's fascinating for a, a number of reasons. First of all, it's of historical interest. He talks about certain, a certain pr- celebrated dispute in his time. He talks about how the, the, the customs, the, the menhagim of how, how printers and publishers try to protect their their investment and protect their sources of revenue. It's fascinating for the for, for, for its halakhic content. He, he, he introduces a doctrine which is an incredibly powerful and broad doctrine of intellectual property in halakha. Also fascinating to me in particular is because the way he looks to non-Jewish law as a source of inspiration for Jewish law. In, in modern American law, the, the, every now and then this is a major flashpoint between conservatives and liberals. Liberals will some typically liberals will turn to European countries and say, "Oh, look what they do! We should uh, our law should should match theirs." Conservatives tend to get very huffy about this, partly because European laws are more liberal. So looking to European laws means that we'll have more liberal laws. Also, I think in principle, conservatives uh, conservatives have a more fundamentalist attitude toward the law that we should look more toward the text itself and less toward what other people think about things. 
But that's what happened in a famous recent Supreme Court decision. To a certain extent, conservatives went back to the text of the Constitution, while liberals wanted to look toward uh, other values and other, uh, other history and so on. But, but in any event, the, the Sholomeshev, the, the third aspect, what, what makes it such an interesting tshuva, as we'll see soon, is the way the Sholomeshev looks to non-Jewish law as, as a source of insight and inspiration as to what halacha should be, even when there is no clear halachic basis for the, for the law in question. So let's, let's take a look at the tshuva and the Sholomeshev. The Sholomeshev wrote thousands of tshuvas. He wrote several maduras, several different volumes. Each volume has several halakim, each chalak sometimes has several hundred tshuvas. This is one of his, I, I'm not sure in terms of the order of when he wrote all his tshuvas, but this is one of the ones published in the earliest section of Sholem Eshev, Madura Kama, Chelek Aleph. So this is, again, a very famous tshuva, and it begins as follows. He says, he says he wants to talk about, it's a continuation of the previous tshuva, he says he wants to talk about the concept of haskamos, uxeris, agreements, and uh, severe prohibitions, that she goes from harabanim aladfasos matfisim partsimba. It was a common practice in Hebrew publishing and Jewish publishing that Sfarim would contain. Today we have Haskamas, where Rav says primarily it's a, it's a good sefer, everyone should buy it, that the ideas are good. Back then, the Haskamas would often be a form of social control, it would be a form of control by the rabbanim what was what, what they allowed to publish and whatnot, and also it would be a, it served as a certain a, it served it served as a certain control on the publishing industry. It served to, uh, to bar anyone else, to enjoin anyone else from publishing this, the same Sefer within a certain amount, of, within a certain period, a, few, a number of years, in order to secure the investment of the printers. The printers would have to invest money to produce, uh, to print uh, a run of, of, this, of, of whatever book they were doing. If they, were, if they didn't have an exclusive for a number of years, they were at risk of, uh, if someone else produced another edition, they, they, they could fail to sell all their copies and they wouldn't recover their fixed cost, their fixed initial cost of printing. So it was customary for printers to get rabbinic uh, edicts forbidding anyone else from printing for a certain period of time. So the Shalmesha was asked how to approach these haskamas, what's the deal with that, well, what's the halacha about printing svarim within the, after someone has already printed a copy of the first sacrament. And we should note this is not quite the same thing as a copyright or as intellectual property, very often, the sefer in question would sometimes be something which was not in, which was not covered by any kind of copyright. Somebody, somebody was printing the Rambam six hundred years after the Rambam wrote it. Nobody was claiming copyright to the Rambam, but the the printer still had to worry that if someone in the in eighteen twenty somebody printed a Rambam, and it might cost him ten thousand dollars for the initial print run. They didn't have printing on demand and all the logistics wizardry that we have. They had to they had to have a large upfront cost to set the type and print a number of copies of the book, and, that, and then they would hope to recoup that cost and make a profit by selling individual copies piecemeal. So nobody had copyright to the Rambam, but there was still an issue that if other printers would be allowed to print Rambams, they might uh, eat the lunch of the first printer, and he'd, be, uh, and he'd take a huge loss. So they would often have these xeros, these rabbinic edicts, preventing anyone else from printing the same work for a certain period of time. So they asked the Shalom Eshev, he, he wants to explain what he thinks the rules are that govern, that govern these types of uh, printing conflicts. And in the course of his tshuva, he articulates something of a doctrine of copyright. He writes, I'm going to write to you, I'm going to explain this, this, this topic by, by, by reporting to you a tshuva that I wrote to a certain other rabbi, he says, to a rabbi named Shmuel Waldberg, based in Zalkova. I wrote this, he says, in the year Tafresh Chafalaf Yudalaf Kislev. So that would be around the that that's the year Tafresh Chafalaf is around the year at, at the very end of eighteen sixty or the beginning of eighteen sixty one. So he says as follows. The, the tshuva I wrote was as follows. Asher Pasak, he says, this other rabbi had had had, had ruled Bidvar. This case was a celebrated case in around eighteen sixty. There were two printers. One was Rabbi Avram Yosef, Avram Yosef Madfis. His last name was actually Madfis, the printer. We have names like Goldberg and Goldsmith and so on, names after professions. So apparently this fellow had a family name, Madfis. His father was named Madfis. He was named Madfis. They took the name because they were printers. So Rabbi Avram Yosef Madfis was the plaintiff printer from Lvov. He was Tovea Tadin, Rabbi Yosef Hirsch Balaban. The, the, the defendant was also a printer. 
regarding the Hadfasas Shulchan Aruch Yerdea, they were printing an edition of the Shulchan Aruch Yerdea with several classic recent commentaries, Prima Gadim, the, the, that, that's the great uh, super commentary on the Shach and the Taz on Yerdea, the Chavas Das, that's the classic work of, of Rav Yaakov of Lisa, Rav Yaakov Lorberbam on Yerdea, parts of Yerdea, Upischei Tshuva. In particular, the, the controversy here was about the, the third work, the work Pischei Tshuva. Pischei Tshuva was an anthology. It's a, it's a collection of tshuvas, Pischei Tshuva. It was an anthology of tshuvas arranged according to the Seder of the Shulchan Aruch, written by Rabbi, uh, that, uh, written by Rav Hirsch, Rabbi Avram Tzvi Hirsh Eisenstadt. It's a great classic, a great classic anthology which is still widely used today. And the argument was that... Um, that, that, this, that this, this edition of the Shulchan Aruch, including these three commentaries, was being printed by this Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Hirsch Balaban, and Rabbi Avram Madfis sued him that he should not do that. That, um, that Rabbi Avram Yosef Madfis was, uh, was, 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 was that, uh, that this Rabbi Balaban should not print the Pesach Tshuva, and this other posek ruled in favor of the defendant, ruled that he had no right to object, and that we'll, we'll see what the issue was in a moment, but that, that the defendant, Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Balaban, Rabbi Yosef Hirsch Balaban, had the right to print the Pesach Tshuva, and the plaintiff, Rabbi Yosef Madfis, had no right to object. So what's the issue? So there were various issues involved. Alzvara Pesach Tshuva, so in terms of the, the, the fact that he was publishing a competing Shulchan Aruch, this rabbi ruled, this other rabbi ruled, he has no right to object. In terms of the free country, anyone who wants can print Shulchan Aruchs. In terms of the Pesach Tshuva, where, which was a recent work that people still held the rights to, the, the rights had been sold to, the, to this uh, Rabbi Avram Yosef Madfis. So it depends, he says. He says, the, it depends. This other of had said that his, his right to print it would depend on whether he had some kind of permit from the government. Not clear exactly what that meant, but that's what he said. It'll depend on whether he has, a, he has permission from the government. But let's see, what, let's see where Avnathan himself rules about this case. The Shalomeshav himself, let's see what he rules. He says, So first he quotes this other rabbi, this rabbi uh, Shmuel Waldberg. He says, he, he explained as follows. Regarding this quarrel, this dispute about printing the Pesach Tshuva, Rabbi Avram Yosef, the plaintiff, said, He had purchased the rights to the work, the, the right to the intellectual property of the work Pesach Tshuva, from the Mechaber. From Rabbi Eisenstein. So that was the plaintiff's claim. I, I, I hold the right to the Sefer, you have no right to print it. Again, it's worth noting Piskechuvu is not an original work, it's not primarily an original work, it's primarily an anthology. But just like with modern law, even anthologies, if they have some type of creative aspect, it's not just a you know, mechanical you know, stuffing together A to Z, but if there's some work in, in, in choosing and arranging and excerpting, if, if there's some kind of a creative work, a spark of creativity, then you can you can get you then it's copyrightable. So halacha too, the, the issue was the, the assumption here was that the Piskechuva had done original work and presumably in putting together his Piskechuva. He also wrote some of his own comments. He, he had he had he had notes, he had he had questions about some of the material. He he occasionally was machria a certain way. So he did add his own material as well. So the plaintiff, Rabbi Avram Yosef Matfis, says, I bought it, I have the right to this work. You can't print it without my permission. So this other postic, this Rabbi Waldberg, dismissed the claim. He says, Whatever Rabbi Eisenstadt sold to you, whatever the author sold to you, he can't sell more than he has, more rights than he actually has. The, the author of the Pesach Tshuva, his rights have terminated, his rights have evaporated. In the year Tufkuf Sadivov, the work was first published around the year around the year 1836, apparently, and from that original printing, from that first edition, Loniskar Shumiser. So I'm sorry, I didn't mention any prohibition. The first printing, many Sfarim again had these prohibitions that people signed, Rabbanim signed, nobody should print it for a certain period of time. But the first edition of the Pesach Tshuva didn't state any title, didn't state any prohibition that nobody should reprint it. Today, every book contains. Uh, a whole paragraph of lawyer boilerplate, illegalese boilerplate about no portion of this work shall be reproduced in any form, optical, mechanical, photo of you know, photo reproduction, in, in any uh, in any manner for any purpose without explicit permission from the from the author or the publisher. 
but the Pisgah Tshuva in 1836 did not contain any such prohibition. This other rabbi said, had it stated in Isra, then maybe we could say it's Aster, Shiesh Isra, a close man Shigavel, until the specified time. It's Aster for anyone to duplicate it. The, the af, uh, even, after, even after the Svarim had been sold, even after the first run had sold out, maybe he retains the right to object to any other printings. Avlum lo nizkar shumzman, but if, if it didn't mention any time, any, it didn't forbid republication for any period of time, ein makam le klal, there is no automatic iser in reprinting the sefer. Be'evi hachta tshuvas simen yud, he brings a very famous tshuva, perhaps the earliest tshuva, also one of the most famous tshuvas on the subject of intellectual property, that the, the Ramah was talking about a case where there were two competing Rambams that were being printed. Both of them were by Christian, Italian Christian printers. They were the ones who did printing at that time, for legal reasons, I think. But one Rambam was in partnership with the Maram Padua, a great Talmud Chacham of that time. And he printed one Rambam, again, the Christians often weren't uh, great Hebraists, so they often have to, they typically employ Jews to do the actual typesetting and editing and so on. In this case, the Maram Padua had entered into partnership with a, an Italian printer to print an edition of the Rambam. It also included Maram Padua's Hagos. And then another printer who was a bitter rival, the two printers were Justinian and Bragadini, I forget which was which, but the second printer was a bitter rival of the first printer, and he, and he produced a competing edition of the Rambam, which he sold at a, at a substantial discount, even at a loss, apparently, just to uh, injure, to cause economic harm to the first printer. Maram Padua stood to lose money as well if his venture wouldn't sell well, so he appealed to the Ramah for a ruling and joining Jews. Obviously, the Christians didn't care what the Ramah ruled, but the point was the, that the market for this Rambam were Jews, and, the, and, and he wanted a ruling from the Ramah, which the Ramah obliged him with, forbidding Jews from buying the competing Rambam. So the Ramah had various reasons why the reprinting of the Rambam by the second Italian was impermissible, was illegitimate. However, says this other Rav, in the Sholem Eshev's case, this Rav Alberg, the reasons of the Ramah, and the reasons were because we have to protect the Maram Padua's investment, but here, Harik Ramachas Farah, the Pesachet Shuvah's first edition had sold out. There were no, uh, there were no copies left uh, where he was going to suffer a loss from not selling. It was a question of a second edition at this point. Furthermore, he says, V'gam enas Farim Shavim, the editions of the Shulchan Aruch of the Pesachet Shuvah were in very different formats. Shemachaber hitfiz Shulchan Aruch Kitanim. The, 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 the Rabbi Eisenstadt, the author of the Pesachet Shuvah, had printed a small format Shulchan Aruch, not the full-blown large Vilna Shulchan Aruch that we see today, the, the large folio size, uh, you know, three-foot three foot tall Shulchan Aruch. The, the early edition was what he calls Shulchan Aruch Kitanim, not full-blown Shulchan Aruch with all the Mepharshim, it was just small edi- a small edition, of the, a compact edition of the Shulchan Aruch, just with Berhetev and Pischei Tshuva, just, with just the Berhetev, which was an earlier anthology of Shach and Taz, largely, and some other acronym, and the Pischei Tshuva. It's actually very interesting. If, if you learn Shulchan Aruch, and you learn Pischei Tshuva, very often you see that whenever the Pischei Tshuva begins by quoting the Shach and the Taz, he rarely, if ever, quotes them directly. He usually quotes them via the Berhetev. He, he usually begins by saying, Ayin Berhetev. And if you're learning Shulchan Aruch, for a modern Shulchan Aruch, you look in the Berhetev, and you see all he does is he quotes the Shach. So you wonder, why does he say Ayin Berhetev? Why doesn't he just say Ayin Shach? And the answer is, apparently, because the first edition of the Pesachet was not printed with the Shach. It was printed in, in, a, in a small edition of the Shulchan Aruch, just with the Berhetev and the Pesachet so a reader of the Pesachet would have easy access to the Berhetev, but not to the original Shach. So we often send you to the Berhetev. So that was the first edition. Uh, the Zeh, and, and this, new, this, this new edition, this, this Rabbi Balaban was printing Gedolim, was printing a large edition of the Shulchan Aruch. Ve'eshi'eshlo Shulchan Aruch Gedolim, someone who's in the market who's buying the large Shulchan Aruch, while you're looking at the Shulchan Aruch, Gedolim or Ketanim, He's not going to want to buy the first edition anyway, the, the other edition, because he wants the larger edition, even though having Pesachet Shuvah is nice, but he wants a big Shulchan Aruch. So they're not really direct competitors, the new edition and the old edition. Below Bari Hazeka, it's not like without your edition he's going to buy the old edition, because even though he might want Pesachet Shuvah, he also wants a big Shulchan Aruch, and the old one didn't come in, in, in large size. So they're not really such competitors, below Bari Hazeka. Ubeprat, going back to his earlier point, Shekhar Machar Mechaber Esfarim, the first edition actually did sell out, this was the position of this Rabbi Waldberg that, 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 that there's no, in other words, as, as the Sholem is, is about to note, this Rabbi Waldberg held 
there is no fundamental inherent right to intellectual property. It's only a question of a right to get some kind of return on your investment. You have no basic property right. And as long as your investment is not in danger, you sold out your first edition or the second edition is not in direct competition, the fact that it's your intellectual property doesn't matter. Unless we can point to, again, assuming there was no explicit prohibition stipulated in the, in the first edition, then unless you can show that there's some kind of, uh, unless you can show that there's some kind of, some kind of uh, loss, that you're going to suffer some loss of your investment, you have no fundamental claim of intellectual property per se. That was the position of this Rabbi Valberg, I don't know who he was exactly, the Shmuel Valberg, this other rabbi, that halacha does not really recognize a full-blown notion of intellectual property. It just recognizes some more limited rights to, to be secure in your investment, your publishing investment, but no general intellectual property rights to a work that you produce. Says the Shalom and this is and these are the key paragraphs. This is really the most interesting paragraph of the whole tshuva. The paragraph in Koldvar of Tumuim, it is the fourth paragraph in the, in the, in the excerpt, in the handout. Vinei Koldvar of Tumuim. Says Rav Nathanson, everything you wrote, your entire perspective, that you're not granting a, a fundamental notion of intellectual property, your entire approach is Tumuim, is misguided, you're missing the point, he says. I don't agree at all with what you're saying, that uh, Halacha absolutely does recognize an intellectual property right per se. The Zevada, he says, this is certain, this is for sure, a new sefer that an author prints, and he merits that his words are widely accepted throughout the world. It's obvious, it's self-evident. He has no source in halacha, but it's obvious, he says, it's just, it's just self-evident, without proof, I can assume this, that an author has, fundamentally has rights in the work that he produces. Forever. Modern copyright law is not forever. Modern copyright law is for uh, a limited amount of time. The changes, they add to it, but uh, it's not forever. It says the Sholem Eshev, he's an intellectual property right fundamentalist. It's pushered, he says, that, that an author who, who produces a new work has permanent, permanent eternal rights to his creation. If someone prints something or reproduces, and here is where he shifts into inventions, covered by modern patent law, he says, if somebody produces some new type of invention, a new type of process, nobody else is allowed to utilize that process without his permission. And this is the, a really fascinating historical tidbit, he says, Rabbi Avram Yaakov of Harabshav. Harabshav, it took me a while to track it down on Google. Harabshav is apparently the city of Harubiyeshav, H-R-U-B-I-E-S-Z-O-W, Oh, with a little line on top of it. I have no idea how that should be pronounced. In Yiddish, it was pronounced something like Harovshov or Harovshov or something like that. It's a city in Poland. He says, This will be from Yaakov in Harovshov. He invented some kind of mechanical calculator, a machine that does Cheshbon, a machine, an early computer, an early mechanical computer. So, Kol Yamov Throughout his life, he received royalties from the government. The government apparently had use for his machine, and they paid him royalties his entire life because he had the right to the machine. It was his invention. So, says the Sholem Eshev, This is a Talmudic phrase. Our Torah, our perfect Torah, should not be worse, is at least as worthy as their frivolous chatter. If the non-Jews, if secular society, if Western law recognizes a, has a legal concept. Our Torah has to have the same concept as well. And furthermore, this is something that uh, reason says has to be this way. Reason would contradict the idea that it's a free-for-all. This is, uh, this is daily and everyday occurrence. That he has a permanent right and, and to his assignees, his heirs, whatever, people he sells it to, he has rights. So the Sholem Eshev, remarkable, out of whole cloth, without a single source in the Torah, he says, it's, it, it's based on Seichel, it's intuitively self-evident, the non-Jews have such a law, and therefore we have this law as well. Okay, the Sholem Eshev just invented an intellectual property doctrine in the Torah, he roots it in Seichel, and uh, obviousness, and in non-Jewish law. He goes further, he quotes various examples, which he fails, prove his point, he says... Just a few weeks ago, he said, A certain printer in the city of Halberstadt 
Ratzel Lahadfis Yama Talmud Mufrasha Yam Shainis. The Yama Talmud was a was an earlier work of a, a few decades earlier, written by a great Talmachacham named Moshe Yeshua Heschel Orenstein, brother of Rabbi Yaakov Orenstein, the Yeshua Yaakov. He published a work called Yama called Yama Talmud, and the Shalomeshi of Rabbi Nathanson and his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law was Rabbi Mordechai Zev Itinja, Itinja, Itinja. They published a commentary on the Yama Talmud called Mefarshe Hayam. So the Shalomeshi says they approached me just a few weeks ago. They wanted to reprint the Yama Talmud and the Mefarshe Hayam, and they asked me permission. Mishal Rishayon Rimeni, and for my brother-in-law Megisi Agon. So you see, they took it as self-evident they have to have permission. And, uh, and furthermore, he says, the Tzlach, the Tzlach was what was the great work of the Nod Behudra, Vichesca Landau, on Talmud. It was printed in Zalkova by Rabbi Shlomo Rabinstein. And then it was printed, uh, and, and when he published the work, he says that he was printing it with permission of the Bnei Hagon at Tzlach, of the sons of Rav Landau. So he, he acknowledges, he has to ask permission. He says the first edition didn't have any gzera at all not to reprint it. But still, it was pushed. He didn't want to print it without, without permission from the heirs. We'll see later. Others argue that they were just being courteous. They were just, uh, just because something is mutter doesn't mean you have to do it. It was polite. It was a gracious gesture to ask permission. But the Shalmeshav says, no, they asked permission because they had to ask permission, because without permission, they would not have been allowed to do it. And that is his position. Now he says something else fascinating. He says, Many Svarim of earlier generations, you see, they, they used to write that, the, that, they're, that, that they're banning the reprinting of this work for a specific duration, for 10 years or 20 years, that they, very often they wrote that the Sefer may not be reprinted for a, for a certain limited period of time. So doesn't that mean, says the, says, you can argue perhaps that that means that there's no right to, lit, to you, you don't have any permanent right uh, indefinitely to control the Sefer, it just means that you have a limited duration right for a number of years. Says the Shalomeshev, no, that's not what it means. Certainly not. A person absolutely does have the right A person certainly has the right to pass, uh, to, to, to make the rules, your, your intellectual property, your rules. Absolutely, a person is not limited by any amount of time. So why did all these svarim have limit sunset clauses in their bans against reproduction? So he says, what, That means just the opposite. Really, what an author wants very often, his primary goal is not to make money. His primary goal is he wants his work to be disseminated. He wants people to read it. He also wants to recover the cost of his, his initial outlay. Maybe he's not going to get rich, but he also, it costs money to print svarim, person wants to recover the cost of the outlay. So he says, don't print it until I have a chance to recover my initial investment. But really, in general, once we get past that point, I would like people to reprint it. I would like people to read it. I would like it to be available. So first give me a chance to, 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 so I can merit but uh, he wants to save it to be reprinted. And it, it may not have huge economic value and, and, and having it reprinted and read is, 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 is the most he hopes for. However, he says, You have one of those relatively rare svarim which actually makes money because it's in high demand. And people say about the article, I think, that they make money on the sidurim and the, the chamashim. Everything else is, uh, is a public service. Everything else they lose money on and the, the sidurim and the chamashim pretty much subsidize uh, the, whole, the whole publishing arm. So it says, says the Sholem Eshev, it, most farm, the person just wants to recoup his initial cost, they'll be happy, and after that, call a kavod. Somebody wants to reprint it after the 10 years, whatever time I need to recoup my cost, call a kavod. You want to reprint it? I hope you reprint it. I hope more copies of it are produced. However, if you have one of those rare svarim like Pischei Tshuva, Shirabu Akonim, it's in very high demand. Everyone buys Pischei Tshuvas. Why? Pischei Tshuva is an invaluable anthology, and the Hamorim, Poskim, who have to pass in the Lachalamai, it's Rechimlo, they need the Sefer. So everyone needs it. Everyone needs it as a reference. Everyone needs a copy of Pischei Tshuva to be able to pass in properly. A safer like that, where he may want to control publication indefinitely because it's, uh, it's a source of revenue and profit in the future as well. Of course he has the right to do that. So again, Shalomeshev says and reiterates over and over, it is, it is self-evident, it is obvious, he says, it, it's based on Seichel, it's based on foreign law, that an author... Someone who, someone who produces something new, intellectual property, he has the right to his intellectual property, 
He has the right to control it. He has the right to profit from it. He has the right to say, you can print it and you can't, you, you can't print it without my permission. And that is the rule. He says, furthermore, another interesting historical point. He says, Mashakasev Shemachabra Lokasev Shemisser. You're going to tell me if Piscachuva really cared about republishing it, so why wouldn't he have written an Isser? Why wouldn't he have? He didn't say anything about an Isser when he printed the first edition. So he said it doesn't really matter because, you know, Afim Lohaya Kasev Isser, Haya Isser Lahasik Vulo. Same thing applies to copyright law as well. They write, you know, no part of this work may be reproduced in any form, etc., etc., etc. You don't have to write that. You have automatic copyright, even if you don't write anything. The mere fact that you produced an intellectual work, you have copyright. What, the law wasn't always like this, but that, that's the modern law, the uni- pretty much universally today. Copyright is automatic, and uh, you automatically have rights to it. It's recommended that you register it, and that you claim copyright, and so on, but you don't have to. And that's what the Shalom Eishif says as well. Even if he never explicitly asserted copyright, he has copyright be'etzem automatically. Avil Bemis, he says, but the truth is, there's a reason they couldn't write copyright. They, they couldn't write any prohibitions in the, in the Sefer. Because for political reasons, for legal reasons. But Medina's Russia, We know that in, in that time, in the mid-19th century, European governments, Russia, they began to crack down on the Kherim. They The government took away the Kherim as a tool of communal regulation from Jewish communities. That's why when you read halachic works and they talk about Kherim, you'll often see one of those notes on the side of the page. It says... This was, this was relevant when the governments allowed the cherem. Of course, today we live under the protection of his magnificent benevolence, the Tsar, and, and, he, and, he, and he tells us not to do cherem, so of course no Jew, no Jew will ever do a cherem, and it, this is only of historical interest, these halachas. For whatever reason, I'm not familiar with all the details of the history, but the governments were trying to take away autonomy from the Jewish communities. They wanted to take away the power they had. They wanted to, the governments were very much opposed to the cherem, so it was, it was firmly prohibited to make any mention of Cherem. Gamba Medina Seinu, the Shalom Eishif says, even here in Galicia, the government doesn't want you interfering with its rules about publishing. Uh, I'm not familiar exactly with exactly what the laws were, but apparently the Shalom Eishif is saying there are also rules we can't really speak freely, we can't make our own rules up in Svarim, because the government would get upset if we started saying we can't do this, we can't do that. The government considered it its prerogative to decide who could print what and who could make rules in Xeris. The government didn't like it if we Jews would try to make our own rules in our Svarim. Basin has no power to pass these kinds of, these kinds of fiery Xeris and Xerims that they used to pass. Shalomeshev admits, he concedes, you will sometimes find that some Svarim do have Xeris and Xerim written in them. Okay, Hamalchus Yilchesed he says, fortunately, the, his magnificent benevolence is gracious about it. Sometimes they look the other way. They, they, they don't crack down, even though it's against the law to write such a thing. Sometimes the printers complain that there will be punishments. Therefore, he says, and the bottom line is, it, it's, for legal reasons, we don't really write these cherims the way they used to anymore. It's too problematic. It's too, it's too dangerous to write cherims in our svarim. Uh, so Solomaisi says, uh, we, we don't write it, but again, he says that the two points he's making are, A, even if you don't write it, uh, you have automatic uh, right to your creation, and B, we can't write it. There's a reason we don't write it. We don't, we don't write it because it's politically and legally fraught to write such things, but, but we, do, we, we would write it. We, we, do mean to, we do mean to assert ownership rights over Sfarim that we compose and publish. And again, he, he, he goes on and on explaining that there. That there's uh, that, that this other rabbi, Rabbi Waldberg, was wrong. That the Torah does recognize an inherent right to intellectual property, and he goes. He, the tshuva goes on for a while. Just one last line I have here in the handout: Ubeshas Tefus Rashan Zakia, another edition of the of the Shas. It says it, it says Meakira from the government so there also it says that Mitzvah didn't tarry, you're not allowed to publish without permission. So this is the Shalom Eishev's position that uh, that that, you're not, that that sort of copyright is inherent. It's remarkable he has not a single Torah source for it, but he thinks it's self-evident, and he thinks that he, he looks toward non-Jewish law, and he says both with regard to inventions and with regard to books and svarim, which is the primary focus of his tshuva. It is obvious that the authors and the inventors have the right to their their creations. So that is the tshuva of the Shalom Nation.
Now, of course, other Akhrarim did not, uh, were, were, did not uh, accept this entirely because this is just such a radical in- innovation just to invent this without a single proof from the Talmud. So another, another great rabbi of, of Lvov, the Beit Yitzchak, who's a, who, who was a little bit uh, around the same time, maybe a little bit later, so the Beit Yitzchak was, 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 was not very happy with the Shaul Meshiv's approach. Beit Yitzchak has a long tshuva dealing with intellectual property type questions, he was focused more on a specific case, whether the, the rights of the author extended to a certain case or not. But in the, in the course of his discussion, he writes, that He saw this tshuva, and he says it was pshitalei, he took it as self-evident, that you're not allowed to print, even without any eskam and cheir, you're not allowed to, that the first printer, has, the author has rights, you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to infringe on his rights. And he says the cheirim was only to, adrab, the cheirim was just to permit it after a certain number of years, but uh, inherently, you have, you have, your rights are, uh, are, are indefinite, are permanent, he says. Says the Beis Yitzchak, he says, says, says the Beis Yitzchak, I don't agree with this at all. He says, I don't see any proof, I don't see any, any, any basis for his position. He says, even though it's true, the Gemara says, Torah delay. The Gemara, the Gemara says, when a Talmud Chacham is Mechadesh Torah, he has a right to that Torah. Yeah, but once, once he taught it, or once he, once he wrote it in a sefer and sold the sefer, he says, nasan, he, this is an assumption he means to disseminate it broadly. Again, if he means to, we could always choose not to, but he says, Torah is bein yafe, like Moshe Rabbeinu, we taught Torah to Klai Yisrael. A person, uh, once a person publishes his Torah, he does not retain rights to it. And, uh, and the cherem was, because without a cherem, the cherem is the only thing that prevents you from copying it. Not that there's any, any, any ongoing right to your intellectual property. What about the Shalomeshev's argument that if someone invents Eza Malacha, no one's allowed to do it below Rishuso? That's the law. And our Torah shouldn't be any, any worse, shouldn't be behind uh, their Sicha Batela? Says the Beit Yitzhak, absolutely not. First of all, he says, Torah is a special case. Even if that's true with regard to inventions or secular works, it's not true for Torah. Torah, the halacha is mani bechinam, afatabachinam. You're not supposed to charge money for Torah. You're not supposed to make your Torah kardim lachtochba. You're not supposed to make your Torah into a, a tool for filthy lucre, for, for, for making money. So you're not supposed to charge it all for Torah. Again, that's honored in the breach. We charge for Torah all the time. But in principle, he says, you're not supposed to charge for Torah. Furthermore, he says, forget Torah, even if we go to the general case of inventions and non-Torah intellectual property. Gambakli malachas, he says, he says, he says, unless you have some kind of patent, some kind of grant from the government that grants you exclusive rights, like we have today with the patent system, lo eda iser, maskunto. I don't grant, I don't concede his fundamental point. Who says that without some kind of patent issued by the government, anybody, anyone has an automatic right to his creations? He does not grant the point at all. He goes on, he brings, again, different chazals about Torah and so on, and he says... He says, even if you're going to tell me that a person has the right to charge, even if you're not going to accept my argument about Mani Bechinam, that you shouldn't charge for Torah at all, even if you're going to tell me I have the right to charge, that doesn't give me the right to exclude others from printing, he says. Where does that come from? Where does such an answer come from? Torah is compared to Mayim, Lisha Tashlumen, Torah is free, anyone who wants can, uh, you know, can, can, can learn Torah. What about the Tzlach, where, where, the, where, the, where, the, where the publishers of a later edition make a point of saying that they secured permission from the sons of the author? They did that as a courtesy because uh, why not? Uh, you know, why not do the? Why not? Why not go to the Mishra Din? Why not uh, get permission? It doesn't mean Mikra Din. They had to. He gives an, he gives another counterexample. He says all the Svarim of the Gon of Lisa, Rabbi Yaakov Lorberbaum, the, the great the author of the Chavas Das, the Makar Chaim, the the the, the the author of the the author of the 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 Chavas Das in Yerdei, the Makar Chaim, the Torah Skitin, the Many, you know, the Beis Yaakov and Ksuvas, many, the, the, the Siddur of the, the Siddur Derech HaChayim, which was a great uh, halachic reference work for, for years. So all his farm, he said, Nitfasu Harbe Pamim, they went through numerous editions, they were printed and reprinted, he, they, they were so popular and so influential that they were printed so many times. I'm not sure if they were influential because they were, because they were, because they were printed so many times, or they were printed so many times because they were influential, but one way or another, probably they were printed so many times because they were so highly valued. Everyone prints them, and they're cheaply available because nobody has an exclusive right to them, so nobody's paying uh, royalties, and then nobody's restricting them. Nobody says that they bought all these other editions, and they never print that they got permission from the, from the heirs. 
if the heirs retained exclusive control and everyone had to pay them, but had to acquire permission, they'd be very expensive because uh, any time that, that's how copyright and patents work. That's why many drugs are expensive. Once they go out, once they go out of patent, the patent expires and you can get generics. They're, they're often available for much less. So he says that the fact that the Makar Chaim, that the fact that the Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa's farm have been printed so many times and are so widely available for so cheap is because you don't need permission. If the safer is popular, anyone who wants can reprint it, and there's no need to get permission. Al Kane, he says, he's not happy with the Shalomeshev's attitude that intellectual property is a fundamental right, a fundamental concept in halacha. Rav Yudah Silman, a contemporary Dayan in Bnei Brak, also is not very happy with the Shalomeshev. He raises a philosophical objection to the Shalomeshev. He notes, as we keep pointing out, the Shalomeshev doesn't cite any source, no halachic source, except for, he says, kind of dripping with uh, skepticism, a sipur shasiper, except for a story that he tells. And then he goes further and he says, I object to the whole notion of bringing Western law, European law, as a precedent for halacha. Why? He makes an interesting argument. He says, We can't infer halacha from sources in Western law. Why? Western law, he claims, modern non-Jewish law, is not based on the fundamental building blocks of right and ownership, based on equity, whatever they feel is, is yosher, is right. You need ownership. Dine Torah is rooted in a more rigorous, a more, uh, a more a stricter and more legalistic notion of ownership, and their laws are just based on a general sense of yosher, of equity, and they're not bound to strict... Uh, concrete halachic notions of bailos and tzchuyos and kinyan. We can debate to the extent to which this is true. We can debate to which the Torah is really... The Torah also has a certain pragmatic element, a certain element of yosher and of, and of the need to facilitate commerce, and vice versa as well. The, the law also contains, uh, contains fundamental theoretical concepts of ownership. It's not all just about equity. But in this particular case, though, Rav Silman, I think, has... Uh, there's a certain logic to his point... The United States Constitution, which, which is what grants Congress the power to make patent and copyright law, it explicitly says that it's not about some notion of fairness or about property. It says it's in order to facilitate the, youth, the, the development of the useful arts and sciences, that the point of the intellectual property is very pragmatic. It's in order to, the reason that we, we have the right to grant uh, exclusives and patents and copyrights is because that'll be an effective way of fostering the development and production of useful arts and sciences. So it's not about uh, fundamental notions of bailus and zechuyos, and, uh, and uh, it's not, at least the fundamental motivation is not necessarily about a fundamental right of property by analogy, by, by analogy to physical property. It's about uh, a pragmatic concern for how we can best incentivize, how we can best facilitate the development of the useful arts and sciences. But be that as it may, Halacha also has uh, a fair, is shot through with pragmatism and shot through with takana sashuk and, and other values which are all about, which are all about facilitating commerce. It's true the Sholomeshev doesn't appeal to that. The Sholomeshev's notion appeals to a fundamental notion of property, of rights. Okay, anyway, Rav Silman feels that the Sholomeshev's logic is uh, not compelling, but the Sholomeshev doesn't need anybody's haskama. The Sholomeshev was one of the Gedolei Hadar from a century and a half ago. And he felt that this was a perfectly legitimate mode of halachic thinking. Well, despite the fact that more uh, more lumdish or you know, other Akronim felt that it, more conservative halachists felt there was no real basis for this, and that it didn't, and that this didn't, this was not really sufficiently rigorous halachic reason. In any event, the Shalomeshev is in, is probably something of a das yachid in this area. Maybe not maybe not a strict das yachid, but many poskim just on conservative grounds, like the Beis Yitzchak, they said this, there's no makar. You really have to have a makar. You can't just wave your hands and say it's logical and, uh, and, and the non-Jews have it as well. You really want halacha to be based more on a, a clear biblical Talmudic precedent rather than just uh, it makes sense, so I think that should be the halacha. I'll just close with one further interchange from this general discussion. The Beis Yitzchak goes on. The Beis Yitzchak was writing, his tshuva was written to Rabbi Shimon Sofer, another one of the Gedolei Torah of that time, the author of the Hisorah's tshuva. And they had a question, he raised a question about also about a copyright type question about Svarim. And one of the issues that this Zoris Chuva raised was perhaps we should recognize intellectual property on the grounds of Din Malchus Adina, since the law recognizes it. Since the law recognizes it, Halakha often incorporates 
law into the halacha on the basis of the doctrine of dina de malchus dina. Maybe we should do that here as well. Maybe we should invoke dina de malchus dina here as well. So he says that the Sarah's Chuva proposed that we should do that. He says, even though there is a doctrine that many posts can hold, that if Din Malchusa directly contradicts Din Torah, it can't supplant Din Torah. We, we don't accept Din Malchusa Dina to regulate the affairs of Jews, internal affairs of Jews, Ben Yisrael, Lechavero, when, uh, when it's against Din Torah. Nevertheless, this Oruz Tshuva has, uh, a, has a major doctrine. He says, if even according to Din Torah, it is the Yosha, it is the right thing to do, Mitzad Yosher V'atov, even if it's not strictly required al Din, according to the Torah, and the law comes along and says, yes, it is the Din, then we follow Din Malchus Adina, even when it's against Din Torah. Since even according to Torah, it's the right thing to do. It's just not strictly mandatory. Then, if the law says it is mandatory, we, we, we follow it as well. Therefore, the Hesorah Tshuva said, when it comes to intellectual property, so like the Sholomesh, if he says, HaSechel HaYosher Morelanu, Logic tells us that someone who was Yagav, Asak Batara, he's talking about Torah, but it might apply to other disciplines as well. Someone who worked hard and produced Lachadesh Zachidush, Batarak Bazeh. So it's Minharai. It, 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 it's fair, he says. It's a sense of Yosher that the person and his heir should have the right to benefit from it. And he says, and, and the proof that it's Yosher is because uh, they made it a law. He says that, uh, that they made it a law as well. Therefore, in such a case where obviously we recognize it as Yosher, the, the non-Jews recognize it as Yosher, and they actually made it into a law, it makes sense, he said, that we should follow Dina Malchus Dina. And the Beis Yitzchak more or less accepts the argument, and makes a similar argument. He says, even though I disagree with the Sholem Eishiv, I don't agree that the Halacha has any inherent notion of, of intellectual property, but Mitzad Dina Malchus Dina, he says, I, I do think that even though it's against in Torah, I do think that we follow Dina Malchus Adina. He says that, he brings other examples, and he says that at least if it's the Minhag, he says, maybe Dina Malchus Adina where there's no Minhag, maybe not, but at least Dina Malchus Adina when there's a clear Minhag to, to act that way, we do follow it, again, maybe even against in Torah. Here as well, he says, copyright law was, was apparently very strict. People were afraid of the consequences, the legal consequences for violating copyright. So copyright law was generally followed. So here as well, we can argue that you have to follow, that you have to, that Dina Malchus Adina applies, and you have to follow the law. Furthermore, he says, even if we're going to say that Dina Malchus Adina against in Torah does not apply, that's only when it's against in Torah to take away property which someone actually owns, Alpi Din. But here, not printing a Sefer, we're just causing you to forego an opportunity. No one's taking any money away from you. We're just telling you, don't print the Sefer without permission. That's not called against in Torah, because... Uh, then, then even the Torah agrees you have to follow Din Malchus Adina in this case. Kolshkin, he says, in this case, where the Shalom Eishev held that it was, it was, Din, it was, Alpi, it was Alpi Din Torah, certainly we would, we, we would say you have to follow Din Malchus Adina. So, and furthermore, he brings the famous Tshuva the Chasim Sofer, anything which is in general for the good of an industry, and that we ourselves would be Misakein if, if we were in control of the government. We, again, we follow Din Malchus Adina. This, so certainly this, it's in favor of the authors, he says, and, and so on and so forth. So he says, his conclusion is, Lahalacha, without Din Malchusa, we would not require permission from the author. Without Din Malchusa Dina, he does not accept the Sholem Eishev, Ladina, that Halacha has any intrinsic native notion of intellectual property. But ain't Afkamina, it doesn't matter, he says. In Medina Seinu, we have Din Malchusa Dina, and for a variety of reasons, because it's, because the Hesorah's Tshuva said, because it was Yosher, he says, because it's the Minuk to follow it, and because, it's, uh, and because it's not really against in Torah, because nobody, nobody's losing any money that they're entitled to Alpid in Torah, and in Yimitzarev HaSholem Eshev, that even Alpid in Torah, this is valid. So because of all these reasons, he says, yes, we absolutely have to follow Din Malchus Adina, and you're absolutely bound by the law not to print works that the law would say you can't print. And this, I think, is, is perhaps the dominant attitude of Postkin today on the subject of intellectual property, there are major shitas all over the map, as we've seen tonight, uh, some of the major ones, some of the basic ones of whether halacha does or does not have any intrinsic native notion of intellectual property. The many postmen, I think, will recommend that you follow the law. Dina Malchus Adina is a powerful doctrine. It applies in many cases, particularly where the halacha doesn't have such a clear, doesn't have such a clear position on the topic. And the Sholem Eishev says quite emphatically, halacha does have a notion of intellectual property, and it's, it's not really against in Torah, and it's consistent with Yosher. For all these reasons, I think this is a pretty standard position that Post can take today, 
that a person who's faced by, uh, by, by the intellectual property of another Jew and wants to know if he has to respect those rights, even if, in terms of the pure Shulchan Aruch, Talmud Halacha itself, the answer may not be entirely clear, but certainly, given the Dina Mokhusadina, given the Minhag, certainly, again, the Minhag today, maybe, maybe piracy is so rampant you can argue what, what the Minhag actually is, but certainly, Mitzad Dina Mokhusadina, I think many posts will tell you that you, sh- that you shouldn't, I- I've heard some explicitly say this, and I think this is probably a, a popular view among poskim, that a person, the halacha is not always so clear, but a person should generally respect the law and not, inf- not commit what the law would consider an infringement of the intellectual property of others. In a general sense, there might be certain exceptions, there might be some cases where the halacha is more lenient on things like fair use, perhaps, or other cases, but, but in general, I think the poskim... There, there is, not, not unanimously, but there is, I think, a, uh, a broad uh, agreement among many poskim that a person, that, 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 a, that a Jew should respect the Dean Malchusa, the law, with respect to intellectual property. Rabbi, uh, you, made, you made an earlier argument uh, about um, not getting money for teaching Torah, um, but we do compensate Rabbeim uh, for their time. Uh, because uh, uh, there, there, there would be an alternative use of their time for which they, they could be compensated. Um, can we use that same analogy, that construct, that is not in the Torah, but is, is used widely to support uh, the, uh, the staff uh, and the teaching at day schools, to also say that uh, without uh, the uh, effort expended in, um, in developing work of compilations of wisdom and uh, the the energy uh, of putting together um, all, the, all this work is similar to what we do with uh, compensating Rebbeim for yes. that work. Yes, so that, that's a very good point. And the Chassam Sofer, in one of his chuvas on this topic, makes this point. The point Max is making is that just as Alpidin, uh, a teacher of Torah, is not supposed to be compensated, nevertheless, we do compensate our, our Rebbeim, our teachers of Torah. And th- there are a variety of reasons offered by the postkin for why we do that. And one of the reasons is because People who people who devote their lives to the to to the study of to the teaching of Torah, if they aren't compensated, they won't be able to survive. They won't be able to do that. So that when the Gemara says you don't charge, that means someone who has an independent source of income, who teaches Torah as uh, teaches Torah as a, a, a discretionary basis, not because that's his job, he shouldn't charge just to take money for teaching Torah. But someone who is committing his life to teaching Torah does get paid because the halacha recognizes that. We have to support such people, otherwise they won't have the, the wherewithal to, de- to devote their lives to these invaluable public services, and therefore they can get paid. And the Chassam Sofer actually makes this point about paying, I believe he makes this point about paying for uh, protecting the rights of publishers as well. He says it's crucial, it's crucial to protect the economic viability of publishing svarim. If we don't, and if we don't take steps to ensure that, they, that, they're, that they're able to make a profit, they won't publish svarim, and then society will be very much the worse off. Therefore, I believe he says that that's one of the reasons why we have to make these cherems and we have to enact these protections in order to make sure that publishing remains viable and that we continue to have, we continue to have SFAR. The question is today, I suppose, where, 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 the, where the cost of entry is so low, the self-publishing, the tools are so widely available, it becomes so relatively easy to publish, that the question is, is, is it still, it's, it's vastly easier and cheaper than it was 200 years ago. The question would be, do we still need as many protections today as we used to, given that Many people who publish do so you know, largely out of love for the for love for the Torah, or just the desire to get their their ideas out, and they they do it, and you know, they they don't want to lose money, but they're not they're not they're not motivated largely by profit. Very few people who publish a safer think it's, it's going to make them rich and it's going to support them for uh, for the next 10, 20 years. So we, we can debate how powerful the Chasim Sofer's argument still is. But yes, the, this argument was made by the Chasim Sofer, I believe, that just as the, the, there's a hetter to support people who learn Torah because otherwise they won't teach Torah, because otherwise it won't be people who teach Torah, so too there's, there's a need to ensure the economic viability, the sustainability of Svarim publishing, because otherwise there won't be publishing of Svarim. Yes.